guys, welcome to Man of the World, a podcast about what it means to be a man in the 21st century, where we explore that through the prism of life, liberty, and the pursuit of watches. Uh, my name's Nick, and I'm here with my uh, alcohol-guzzling <laughs> friend, Neil. What are you, what are you drinking, Neil? Uh, this is um, a, a glass of Jameson's Ooh. at the shore leave hour of 4.30 in the afternoon. Classy, not, not 420 for our 420 uh, friends. Um, actually, you were in a band called Shirley, weren't you? I was, and the theory was behind that band mm. that we were on Shirley, but because Sydney being Sydney, everyone thought we were from the North Shore. So we were fighting it uphill the whole way. Rookie, rookie error. Yeah. You've, uh, you've got to understand the, um, you know, the local terrain when you call stuff. Sydney's tribal, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. It is. Well, actually, I went to I went to a school that is technically called Sydney Church of England Grammar School, so it was nicknamed Skeggs. So, uh, but there's another Skeggs, which was a, a public school, and rather we were a private <laughs> school, and we didn't want to get um, you know mistaken for the plebs, so we called ourselves Shaw as a nickname. And then oh, after doing that cool. for about fifty years, they actually made it our official name. So now oh, it's literally called Shaw. I never knew. Yeah. So that's what my band was being mistaken for. Uh, snooty kids who would wear boaters to school. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder we got nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Nothing to do with the songs we wrote or anything like that, the no, way no. we played them. And so you're, you were kind of jazz, funk, swing? How did you describe yeah, it? Yeah, that was that band with Natasha as the lead singer. So we were sort of a soul band with funk overtones, but everyone in the late 90s in Sydney had that going, that soul band with funk overtones. It was, it's a bit pedestrian in the end, but who's being elitist? Now, I, I played trumpet from year 7 to year 12. I reached the dizzying heights of mediocrity, and then I quit. And let's just say nobody argued for me to continue. Um, <laughs> and, you're, and you're having fun now. Yeah, so no, I, I am. Actually, the reason I took up trumpet was because of asthma. I had horrific asthma as a kid, and my parents, yeah, yeah they got me into swimming and then into playing the trumpet in order to build up my lung capacity. Ah, and you could regulate your breathing. Yeah, yeah. So now I can speak for seven hours nonstop. It's brilliant. <laughs> as, uh, we'll, as we'll put to the test. <laughs> How much memory has this thing got? Oh, uh, danger. So we, we, we wanted to just start off the, uh, the first episode by saying we, yeah, well, we're going to talk about watches and we're going to talk about masculinity, what it means to be what in Australia we call a bloke, um, but, you know, a, a man, a real man, a gentleman. and um, which, which, thankfully, now the lines are blurring. And I yes. don't mean gender specifically. I mean there's more strings to that bow in mm. terms of uh, manhood in Australia or manhood in Sydney, but, uh, yeah, either or, I guess. Well, we, we met as English teachers back in the day, and English teachers all kind of have a... Um, you know, really get acquainted at university with the concept of being a Renaissance man. Um, that idea of being a Sir Walter Riley. You, you know, on the one hand, you're fighting pirates and you're, you're kind of running a, a militia and being a badass mm. with a, a saber and a cutlass. But on the other hand, you you write poetry, which he did, and then every now and then you put a cloak down for the queen to walk yeah. over a puddle. Um, and yeah. that sense of the constant quest for rebirth, isn't it? The constant quest to try and push your boundary to to adventure to to find new limits to cross things like that and it's an ongoing quest it's never fulfilled there's there's 
there's no complacency involved. Is uh, that's that's what it's, the the word has always struck me as being defined like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I like the idea of it might sound a bit pompous, but of a, like a uh, a polymath. You know, I Ooh. I don't want to just say, well, I'm interested in English literature, and therefore I'm not interested in uh, geography and music and dance and a whole bunch of different things. It's like, well, I'd like to be interested in everything. Mm. Um, and explore everything. Mm. Now, um, I got into, you've been into watches for some time. I'm quite a novice. I've really only got into watches in a big way in the last couple of years. Mm. And I... What was your first first piece that you that you remember first getting and thinking, oh, now that's, that's a watch? Ah, uh, uh, good question. I, um... Was it that Tissot or Tissot? Yeah, so however you want to pronounce it, I, I pronounce it Tissot, but um, it was a Tissot PRC 200, which is... Yeah, good sports watch. One of the more famous uh, Tissot watches. Yeah, it's just a, just a real kind of classic. I mean, I, I, I decided to buy myself a proper watch um, after a couple of years of working and I had a little bit of cash. So in Australia, it would have cost about uh, 650 bucks, mm. about... I don't know, let's say 500 American, which at the time, um, 10 years ago, would have been a little bit of a stretch. When you're first getting into watches, that's a that's a sizable budget. Mm. And I'm kind of, I'm a little bit pleased with myself, to be honest, because um, jumping on Instagram, that particular TSO seems to have really struck a chord. You know what I mean? Oh, like people, people like the look of it. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's sleek but sporty and it's, first chronograph that I bought and then oh. I ended up buying a stack of different chronographs but uh, what about you first watch you bought uh, not necessarily the most expensive but one that kind of really hit you I remember doing this it was after I gained full-time employment at the old coalface the old um, college where we uh, met as colleagues I thought I'm going to buy a serious watch as I'm going to buy a stainless steel Parker pen and a serious watch and at that time, a serious watch was about $200. It was a Seiko 5 dress watch, mm. uh, a mechanical watch, which I had no idea about at the time. But subsequently to that, I found out a lot about it. But that was the first one. So I guess that was 1995 or thereabouts. Now, you mentioned Instagram before and the, the likes that you got for the Tissot. Instagram is it's a broad church, I, and I like the vibe of Instagram. It's very positive. Mm. Whereas you look at comments on YouTube, comments on Facebook, there's a it's a breeding ground of negativity. Well, it's interesting that you know one of the big hashtags for the watch community is you know watch fam, and there's a real mm. sense of kind of family, which I don't think is artificial or contrived. I think people are genuinely like, well, I live in Sydney, you live in Singapore, this person lives in Sri Lanka, this other person's in San Diego, but you know we're probably never going to meet, but we all happen to think that a company's ability to put technology and beauty in something, you know, the size of a, a coin on your wrist is pretty freaking amazing. Yeah, I like it. And Instagram as well. Well, we could, there's two ways to, to talk about this topic, both the, the fascination with the watch uh, as a community and also as a social platform. Instagram seems to be, because Facebook own it, I guess, seems to be their growth area at the moment, and given the amount of advertising creeping into Instagram as well. Now, that's a bit underwhelming, but yeah. you know, if anything's a free 
platform. There's yeah, no surprises there. What I, I find the world's becoming inc- increasingly political and divisive, and just frankly intense. And mm. it's just rather nice to jump onto Instagram, and it's essentially pretty pictures. Escape, sound, escape. It's a bit escape, and um, yeah, and and people geeking out over things and not being called nerds are a bit weird. I mean, yeah. if you're fascinated by watches, you might be in a half of 1%. Mm. But if you get all those half of 1% together um, on a particular hashtag or a you know, particular channel, um, yeah, I love it. So, I mean, I, I, I suppose something that's really, really resonated with me as uh, a man trying to kind of make my way in the world. I'm 42, so I'm not young, but I'm not old. I'm kind mm. of in that... I'm in the age that Ian Fleming said that James Bond was was 42 oh, to 43. Oh, yeah. Right. So that that age where you're kind of you have enough experience for you to be very experienced, but you're young enough for you still to be kind of you know uh, physically and mentally lithe and flexible. Mm-hmm. But um, kind of yeah, at that but age. The, also, there's a there's a slight bit of you could sense the uh, uh, bit of vulnerability he built into the character there. It's yeah, there's an age where if he was fighting a 20-year-old, hefty, mm. Cold War Russian warrior, that he would be a bit worried and look for the easy way out, pulling yeah. out the wolf, those type of ideas. <coughs> you know, and being a Ian Fleming uh, kind of super fan, it, mm. it's, it's funny, I'd say 95% of people who know James Bond, A, know him from the films, mm. and B, only know him from the films. And if they were to bother to read a novel that'd be kind of you know uh be blown out of their mind I mean, they the, are the, great reads aren't yeah they? and not not uh, so for example the first line in casino royale which is like you know something something like the the sound and the smet the sound and the smell and the the sweat from being in a casino all night kind of mm-hmm. you know he kind of like revolted from that yeah. so basically the first line is about um moral disgust at being in this environment it's mm. about being at the end of his tether if you wanted to stretch it out maybe a little bit of post-traumatic stress syndrome chucked in it's, there it's not a luxurious no desirable picture that he that well or or metaphor that he's employing there is it it's it's yeah he he paints it as a grim sort mm. of a vision of uh, <laughs> i've been at the baccarat table yeah for four hours straight and of course you know ian fleming um actually was at a casino when he was in the British intelligence and he actually um, had some betting against some Nazi officers in order oh. to kind of win money from them and he ended up losing. So so Casino Isle is a bit of wish fulfilment trying yeah, yeah. To, to, you know, redress. It would be like Jane Austen writing um, all those novels where the girl gets the guy because, of course, she ended yeah, up it, never getting married. Yeah. But the reason I mention all that is because, you know, I'm at that age where you're kind of, you know, you're not an old dog, but you're not young. It's mm. kind of a really nice age, and perhaps you're discovering, or perhaps you're rediscovering your masculinity. And um, on Instagram, I have a a bit of a, a love affair with Ohio because I spent a year. Oh yes, yeah. You were you were uh, were you working over there? Yeah, it was a, it was a summer camp. I spent four months living in a log cabin and teaching kids how to ride horses. But ah. the thing with Ohio is that. Um, Ball watches come from Ohio, and they're obviously massively connected to railways. But what I love about them is on Instagram, if you follow their official, uh, I suppose they call it channel, 
they they have a lot of their ads. And back in the day, about a year ago, their ads were all about the features mm -hmm. of the watch. Now they're about the attributes of being a man. Uh, that, aspirational. Aspirational. Yeah. That are exemplified in the watch. So, so courage, mm. adventure, boldness. In fact, pushing yourself mm. to, to or defining new limits, uh, discovering worlds that haven't been discovered and less tied to the concrete uh, watch piece that you're talking about. That's, yeah. Uh, In fact, you, you were listened to one of their ads and it's like a 30 second ad. And I, I just wanted to buy it. Yeah. Afterwards, I thought oh, I've got to get Boom. that. Saw the price, which was uh, in the scheme of things affordable once you get into the watch sort of desirability game it, it, it's a just over a thousand us dollars i think yeah is it? yeah which is that that's a chunk of chunk of money but once you uh, you've got hamilton more at a 500 or maybe 400 us dollars uh, at the the sort of lower end but perfectly respectable end of the swiss market to sew if you're going with automatics or, or um, mechanical pieces, they're around the same price point, and uh, there are, there are varying degrees of that. But once you're getting into ni really nice dive watches or uh, ball watches or engineer watches with that uh, anti-magnetism and things like that, that they mm. they tout a lot, which and they've got a bit, you know, kind of a big focus on uh, anti-magnetism, anti-shock, and of course their mm. big signature is their Oh, this yeah. is the story about the trains, yeah. Oh, well, actually, is that what you're... No, I was, was going to mention the fact they have those, like, micro gas tubes, mm -hmm. which last literally 25 years, which is yeah. crazy. But um, they first started, and they were started by Mr. Ball, and uh, he was... There was a horrific um, train accident in, uh, in America uh, back in, like, you know, let's call it, say, 1885. The, the foundational days. Yeah. And... Roughly a dozen people died, and it was it was an absolute national mm. tragedy and shock and outrage. And people started to to ask the big questions. You know what what's going on with kind of yeah, speed and time? It might have and, happened a couple of times mm. too. Yeah, huge accidents. Yeah, yeah. really, almost. We're, we're talking kind of a, a, a mini Titanic on land. So mm. they they brought this guy in and said, "Listen, someone needs to commandeer the system. Can I make sure the trains not just run on time, but mm. more importantly, are safe?" And um, and he he'd gone from doing I think pocket watches to doing wrist watches and essentially came in and got the trains to run on time and thus a regulate a yeah. regulated approach and so you just you just stopped having um, uh, train accidents mm. and pretty much you know reduced the the mortality rates um, you know ninety five percent which is amazing due due to just the idea of we're synchronizing watches but the trouble with that is you've got to have a baseline. If, uh, apart from GMT or the Greenwich sort of mean time, have, you've got to have someone locally to Ohio. What's a major city in Ohio? Dayton? Yeah, Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. yeah. It's a Cleveland. guy there de defining this is our baseline, everyone sequences to this. Mm. And he was, Ball was the first guy to do that. Yeah. And, and that's, heritage, that's heritage there. Yeah. In fact, uh, we're, we're both uh, huge fans of Retro Watch Guy. And if you're not on. Uh, his Instagram, you need to sort that out. So Retro Watch <laughs> yes, Guy yes. offered a, a ball, um, an actual rail watch, oh. uh, wrist watch, but uh, very much focusing on their rail history. Oh. And so simple and pure, but just a stunning looking watch, or almost kind of 
a feeling of, of porcelain yeah. on, the, on the dial. Um, but if you look at some of their watches now, they've got you know engineer one, two, and three, mm. kind of a lot of fireman's watches, watches for the, the Navy or at least commemorating the Navy. They've got similar to a Panerai, that kind of... Um, uh, like that, the crown guard. The crown guard, which is which is almost disproportionately big because mm. they're so so ballsy. Yeah, as it they're were. Part of an expression. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's absolutely massive on the um, yeah. what is it the the hydro that you just think actually yeah that looks that looks badass. And, and speaking from a practical end, I've I've when when diving, I've dislodged a screw down crown. Uh, hmm. It does happen. You, you can nudge it accidentally, particularly when you're an a amateur entry-level diver, such, such as I've been, and you're f- the flurry of activity and getting all your gear correct and getting into the water and sorting your, your fins out and all that sort of thing. Uh, I, I've knocked the Steinhardt screw-down crown on my the hmm. Steinhardt Ocean 1 and just saw it in time before I submerged, and I was almost minus a watch there. That hmm. would have been irretrievably damaged. But, it, yeah, it can quite easily happen. So screw-down crown is not the... It, they're, they're very secure. It's a, it is arguably a, a great way to waterproof a watch, but it's not foolproof, as I discovered. <laughs> not foolproof, not waterproof. first started diving you chose a particular watch and that was going to be your diving watch but then when you started to put your you know all, all your different equipment on mm. you actually found it didn't fit very well oh uh, yeah this was uh, uh, the reason i'll preface it with the reason why i got into diving apart from really glorious uh snorkeling expeditions in fiji which were marvelous but uh I'd bought a few dive watches, or, or actually one dive watch, a Steinhardt uh, Rolex homage watch, and was looking to, ah, I've, I've got to seriously use this watch. I better learn how to dive. Uh, but the trouble with a, a dive watch on a metal bracelet or stainless steel bracelet is they don't expand very well. So if you put it on the outside of your wetsuit, it, it's not going to move unless it has what Rolex and uh, Amiga offer, the expandable uh, dive clasps, which that's getting into very expensive territory. But my first dive, which was the dive where I left the, the crown unscrewed, I also dropped the watch in the car park. So from a waist height, if it had been an $8,000 Submariner, uh, that would have been... The, the Submariner would have taken it. That's what the Rolex history is based upon. But it got a severe dent uh, in the back of the watch and a, a moment of concern. So, well, so uh, you, you, own, you own a few Rolexes. Do you actually use them to dive? Uh, I, I, have, I, I haven't got a, a dive watch per se. I've got a, an, an Explorer 2 and a, the original Explorer 2 uh, as well which are both 100 metres water resistant, so they could quite easily, you could dive with them because they'd be genuine ratings. But um, I, 
it's just a bit too... Uh, I'm sure they could take it, and that's the basis of Rolex's heritage, isn't it? That they can take that sort of... They are the ultimate tool watch. Well, yeah, it's funny, because if you if you ask people in... You know, I mean, the first James Bond novel, of course, was Casino Royale, um, but because some American TV brand, you know, bought the rights and ended up making Casino Royale with uh, Jimmy Bond, oh, um, yeah. they, they couldn't actually make it into a movie for, for 50 <laughs> years. But when they did make the first movie, of course, being um, Dr. No, the first oh. time you see James Bond wearing a watch, what what's the watch? Oh, this is the, I think it's uh, a Gruen yeah. dress watch, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Gruen dress watch, which is, I'd never heard of them. Funnily enough, mm. uh, they come from Ohio. Really? Yeah, come from the States. This is, Ohio was the hotbed of... Yeah, how bizarre. Of, of watch construction. It's a beautiful watch, very, but when people think of James Bond, they they probably wouldn't put Gruen out there as their, the first watch he ever, you know, It must be said, I, I guess... At that time, what we call a dress watch, they they would call a sports watch at that time. Mm. If you have a visible seconds track on near the indices, which dress watches shouldn't have anything. Mm. They should arguably be blank, almost just have hands and no, not even a, a, a second indicator to indicate uh, seconds elapsing uh, in the true sense of dress watch. Whereas, and now we look at those like a Gruiners. That's a dress watch. And then, I suppose, ironically, when you actually see the watch he uses next, which is, of course, the, That's the, uh, sub, isn't it? the, yeah. the famous Rolex Submariner, a couple of things. One, interestingly, that is an absolute sports watch, but mm. nowadays people buying that watch, I would suggest they'd rarely actually dive no, with it. No. A bit of desk diving, but they're probably going to wear that with a suit or even a... Even a tux because yeah. it's so darn expensive. No, I think the old they were something like thirty-seven millimeters, mm. which in today's today's money or today's measurement is is a lot of guys wouldn't feel comfortable with thirty-seven. Mm. Uh, well, it's it's funny the the actual watch he wore um, was Harry Saltzman's the uh, the producers uh, because they they didn't have another one and yeah. quite frankly it was pretty expensive and they only made the first film it was. Pr- to be honest, pretty bloody cheap. They only expected to make one or two films. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't expected to be the behemoth that ended up being. Yeah. But um, although their budget was spent on getting to the location, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have a look at the um, the uh, NATO strap that they use, it, it doesn't even fit. Oh yes, like yeah, it's, that's it's the a famous the famous screen capture of, mm. of a smaller strap. But that's become quite desirable that look. Mm. <laughs> think, yeah. Which I kind of like. I like the fact that he's again kind of a, rena- a Renaissance man. He's mm. a guy who can, you know, wear wear a tuxedo and play uh, expensive games with the rich and famous. But when he gets down to business, he just gets. A strap, chuck it on. Let's go to business. Yeah, it creates his own style, mm. like, like and of course, that became the uh, the infamous Bond uh, NATO strap. But do you think, uh, probably, I don't know time wise, but could it be we, we end with a discussion of what Rolex means to people today? We've got differing schools of thought. So Rolex for me is is a grail watch. They are extraordinary and beautiful, but somewhat bizarrely in the last little while, because they're so desirable, mm. it's a little bit for me like, um, okay, let, let's say I won the lottery and I was a millionaire. Now, mm. would I buy a Ferrari? Well, obviously, Ferraris are some of the greatest cars of all time. I don't know. Maybe once I got to that 
stage and yeah. phase in my life, I'd actually go, you know what, screw it. How about I get a Lotus? How about I get a... Um, or a, even an Audi. Or, be... or, or even a Zonda or so, something very left of center. Like Ooh. what are those American... Oh, uh, I see what you mean. Like a, yeah. a GT40 or yeah. a... Um, what are they... Uh, D Tommaso. Yeah. If you if if money were no object, but you there is a sense of practicality in these things. You don't want to be... and 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 personality and being unique. Mm. I don't want to be just oh, there's fifty rich guys in a room, forty nine are wearing Rolex, and the other guy's wearing a Panerai. I'm right. like actually screw it. Why don't I wear something that you guys might not have heard of? Like um, uh, like a one of my favorite watches is a Brichot, uh which is a Swiss brand. It's yes, a skin yes. diver. It's a fantastic watch. Mm. Very of its time. Um, but well, courtesy it's, of retro watch guy yeah who, class yeah. as hell really really fun it, it it is Swiss it's a skin diver it sounds very kind of Swiss slash French slash mm. exotic Brichot but most people haven't heard of that and it's I don't know it's a talking point mm. it's unique mm. it's different exemplifies kind of who I am or at least who I'm kind of trying to be yeah this encompassed in that is what our purchasers say about what we're trying and the ball the advertising for the ball watches is what what are we grasping for well maybe that's the wrong word but what are we striving for in in the purchases we make with you you say the brichot which is a vintage piece it it has patina it's that weathering to a watch but it's a it done it's well done it it's occurred in a very attractive way uh, the the ball engineering watches are almost the ultimate in practicality once you take Rolex out of the equation because you you might have to now because Rolex has too much baggage. Well, it's I, as a, as luxury. I, I think they're getting, and I don't want to overstate it, but I think they're getting either getting or going to get a little bit of backlash because they're doing things like mm, yeah. making sure that everyone who repairs. Rolexes uh, has to do it at a particular rate and it's significantly uh, higher and maybe that's they're trying to do a uniform rate I mm. get the impression they're trying to they're trying to get people to say you buy a Rolex and you buy essentially the latest one mm. yeah, and they don't, yeah. the vintage industry doesn't work in their favor yeah you know it's like selling a secondhand book it doesn't mm. help the author so a lot of guys find yeah. out the hard way that Never send your vintage Rolex to Rolex to get service because you'll it'll come back with new hands and new dials and things like that and suddenly you, your watch is worth a third of what it was. It's, so if anyone's out there has one thing you're getting one uh, service, go to an independent watchmaker. Mm. That's that's the end of my rant. And and <laughs> that that type of stuff, like I, I get where they're coming from. This is a this is a company that has. One one eye on its current customers and one eye on its future customers, particularly uh, obviously the ones in China, because as we know, everyone's fat market. Everyone's yeah. fascinated by China, particularly Hollywood. Everyone's you know keeping their eyes on the prize. So, mm. but if if Rolex are going to go into China and maybe sell, I don't know, ten million watches, mm. is that gonna is that gonna dilute their brand? Is mm. it going to make them almost common? Well, now they're also this leads into the choking of supply that they're doing maybe they keep the things thin on the ground the new uh, gmt released at basel world there it apparently even before as the stories broke the waiting list was four years long to get a stainless steel sports watch i mean that's ludicrous but all or 
it's a great manipulation of the marketplace and they might might choose to do the same thing in China just keep things really thin and the demand goes through the roof and the trouble with that is the the vintage prices reflect that as well yeah you know that that classic trick that uh, restaurants do where they 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 put their their wines out there and let's be honest restaurants make their money from wine Ooh. not food and they invariably um if they want to get rid of a bottle or they've bought a whole stack of bottles and they know they're going to get a massive oh, return yes, on it, yeah. they make it the, the second. You know, they make oh. it the most expensive, they make it the second because they know that guys trying to impress their girls, mm. you probably can't afford the most expensive. You're not going to choose the third one on the list because yeah, you look yeah. like a cheapskate, so you choose the second the one. So maybe it's their way of kind of carving out more of a market for Tudor, which is their brother-sister brand. Oh, yes, yes. I don't know. Maybe it's a way of um, kind of making their mid-priced watches look more reasonable. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to have this uh, almost conspiratorial approach to it. Are, is is their big goal that to link arms with Tudor or, or to maintain the link and, and dominate in the different price segments? Or it's, it's, it, They're interesting intellectual ideas to follow. Well, and, and it's, I don't think we're, um, I mean, we're both former English teachers, so we're, we're really good at reading into stuff. But <laughs> yes, yeah. th- this is the company which famously the uh, the CEO of Rolex, this is a, this about, you know, about, oh, this is about 20, 25 years ago, was, oh, right, was right. asked in a restaurant in New York and, yeah. and, a, and a fellow uh, CEO, maybe kind of gentle ribbing, said to him, you know, how's the watch business? To which he, and everyone in the restaurant stopped and looked mm. at him and he replied, but I don't know, I'm not in the watch business. I'm in the luxury business. Uh, Which, of course, the kick-ass answer, and he's really is. got marketing down to a T, but at what point... It, there is a point where they are in the watch business. Yeah, I mean, did yeah. I miss a memo? You're making watches. Yeah. So if you're starting to make diving watches that are so expensive, people don't dive don't with dive them. Don't dive with them, yeah. And watches where you can't really repair them even though they're known to be bulletproof. I mean, mm. we read a story about a guy who, I think he lost his $15,000 Rolex... And he got a local fisherman and he gave him the coordinates of where he lost oh, it yeah. and commissioned the guy to basically, you know, have a look for it and keep an eye out for it. Yeah. And he found it seven months later and it had kind of, not barnacles on it, but it was covered yeah, in a whole looked, bunch of... It looked it, yeah. Yeah, it looked it. And they, they cleaned it off and, were, you know... It's fine to be working. And yeah. fine and it working smooth as butter. So you've got this, you've got this strong as a tank reputation, yeah, but yeah. if you're strangling the market... And focusing on luxury and the superficiality of mm-hmm. your, your brand, is there going to be a point where people say, you know what, stuff it? Well, in, gonna, in reality, you know? yeah, I, I dive with with Oris and Seiko because of their they have a they've they've earned a reliability and a sturdiness uh, a reputation for uh, sturdiness and reliability. So, so first dive, whichever was the. Is it the Blanc Pont? Yeah, I think it's Blanc Pont. Uh, the, the the fifty uh, fathoms. Fifty fathoms. And then you, you then you get like um, Rolex has a crack at the title with you know this whole oyster technology, mm. which is mind shredding. But Seiko got in there what sixty nine, maybe even yeah, sixty eight. Yeah. That's it, that's only a couple of years off the uh, off the mark. Yeah, and and you'd have to argue too that dive watch technology peaked in the early seventies, mm. and in terms of practicality. And now we have increasing depths that are unattainable outside of a diving bell. Mm. You, you bought can. a uh, you bought a New Zealand brand recently that can do like 
you know, half a kilometre. Yeah, 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 it's funny when you think of it. I was a beautiful watch. I, I thoroughly recommend uh, Magretti. Uh, and, uh, I really like it. I haven't dived with it yet, mind you, but I'm sure it's, it, it looks very sturdy and 500 metres, yeah, half a kilometre water resistance. But at the moment, I'm diving with my 100 metre Horus Diver 65, which, you know, the limit of my diving at the moment is 32 metres. We can start to feel the pressure of the mask yeah. on, your, on, on your forehead pressing in. That, that's pretty deep. Uh, yeah. And I, I found what I, when you, you look at them and you've got a choice between a 100 metre, 200 metre, 300 metre, mm-hmm. you think, well, I better get the best. But yeah. but when I've done scuba diving and I've I've only done a little bit around in in Manly and to right. be to be fair we only went down about um, oh, maybe maybe seven meters yeah. maximum but I was just wearing a um Seiko Spatura oh, um, yeah. chrono and it, it actually even had a, a leather band which I wasn't smart enough to kind of swap oh, for yeah. NATO but um I went. I went in that absolutely fine, it smashed fine. it. Yeah. In fact, I had a had a beautiful experience um, scuba diving because at the bottom of the bay which we were um, scuba diving in, a the story goes that you had a Yankee, an American soldier, was stationed in Australia, mm. and towards the end of the Second World War, when he realised he was going to be you know shipped back to America because his you know tour of duty had finished, right. uh, he owned a a, a Yamaha motorbike and he realized oh. he couldn't take it back home yeah. with him so he he started it up lined up on the uh, on the wharf and then drove through <laughs> the wharf and off yeah. the end and crashed into the the water and then just swam back into shore for a laugh yeah. uh, I don't know drunk high just you know yeah, yeah. skylarking about anyway the bike is still there oh, and the bike it's... is on the bottom of the uh, you know the ocean and it's covered in uh, coral yeah. and bits and bobs. So when I went swimming down there, I went straight to its rear vision mirror and kind of, which, which is covered in, you know, stuff yeah. and just kind of got my finger and scratched that off and was able to, to look oh, myself in the eye with this, you know, 70-year-old bike. It was yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And now it's become a, a diving landmark mm. and a rendezvous point. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. But I remember thinking... I was diving and completely fine, and I was yeah, just wearing yeah. uh, a Seiko chronograph, which I'd bought. I think they retail for eight hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, yeah. I bought it for five hundred at a shop in Chatswood, Sydney, Australia, and I didn't really feel the need. No, no, that to, to have a Rolex probably rated to a hundred meters, and yeah, a lot of these watches for sale are rated without a screw down crown to a hundred meters now. And you can swim with them perfectly happily. Uh, just don't be operating chronograph functions underwater, though, or no. you'll have <laughs> water ingress. But uh, by and large, watches are very hardy now. So, I mean, I think the takeaway of this is that Rolex have priced themselves out of the practical end of watch usage, that you're not going to take mm. an $8,000 watch. Uh, into harm's way.
it's not smart to kind of sever your roots because I, I look at I look at Apple and mm. the Apple Mac, you know, used to just be rock solid. You know, yeah, the, uh, the, the accessible, yeah, easy to use, and, and the, like the Pro, and it, literally the pros would use it. But mm. now it's started. It's they're getting all into kind of tarting things up and yeah, having yeah. a massive broad scope of products and making them ridiculously expensive and new and dongles. redundant menu systems and you can't find what yeah, you want easily. And now there's going to be a point, if they're not careful, that the real moves and shakers, the tastemakers, when it comes to, you know, like your graphic designers, mm. etc., they're going to choose something else. And the second they choose something else, that will filter down. Yeah. It's like yes. that scene in... Um, you know, the Devil Wears Prada, where, you know, the main character says, oh, I don't care about fashion. And then the main character, whatever, Miranda Devine says, um, well, actually, uh, you know, the, the decisions that are made in Milan mm. actually filter down. They do make their way. So, course. you know, maybe six, eight months later, the reason you're buying a cobalt blue sweater in Target is because of decisions made in, you know, um, uh, Rome. Yeah, and I think in a similar in the previous fashion, yeah, or, or two years previously to that, it it makes its way through. So some, thankfully, well, not thankfully, but you know, Microsoft uh, easing themselves out of the operating system industry by the by the uh, the ill, Ill usability of of Windows ten, but that's a separate side issue. Yeah. anyone that comes into operating systems like Google could clean up if they just make it simple and easy to use. Mm. But I look at that and I think if if Apple made their name with kind of graphic designers and the people who look really funky and cool when they're in mm. a cafe mm. doing their work and everyone looks at them as the tastemaker, if they cut themselves off from that, that's a rookie error and Rolex might be doing the same thing. And let's be honest, Rolex is a grail watch of mine. You own a couple. They're brilliant. One day I will buy one. That's yeah, yeah. job done. But if I'm starting to look at alternatives and I'm, I really want to kind of be an individual and unique, mm. I'm, maybe I'm going to look at a... Uh, a ball. Maybe a ball watch or, or an old school uh, Squale from maybe yeah, you know the 1970s. Yeah. And I might actually end up circumnavigating uh, that brand entirely which is not great because once your watch geeks start to say oh listen this is just made for businessmen yeah. as opposed to people who are genuine like back to um instagram there's a fantastic short uh 30 second video on oris um on their official um you know instagram page mm. where you've got this female i should know her name she's a really famous freediver but she's oh. she's wearing an oris and she she dives down some ridiculous you know, 50, 60 metres, something outrageous. And I just think, she's doing this in real life. This is actually happening. Yeah. You know, and, and Oris is starting to build up that momentum. And there's going to be a point where maybe people are going to say, well, if, if you don't know much about watches, but you're rich and you want to show off, buy Rolex. Yeah. But if you really want to... An affordable... You know, uh, and a, 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 an, an alternative that's got street cred, mm, go mm. for an Oris. You've yeah. got an Oris, don't you? Oh, uh, yes. And, and very happy with... An Aura 65, the 40 millimeter with the funky numbers, and a, and a modern Aura's Aquas. Uh, they they are, yeah, they are some of the sturdiest things ever ever made in terms of watches. I think I, I vouch. Uh, before we just wrap up, I'm going to do a little bit of a time check for me, Sydney, Australia. It's now 12 minutes past five, and I'm looking at my watch, which is. It's actually yeah, a new watch. It's a uh, Seiko Solar Chronograph. 
And what I love about it, it's it's kind of weird to be honest. It's chunky but sleek. Mm-hmm. It's sporty but classy. And it's um, it's is this old... the recraft? One yeah, the it's recraft? the recraft. So yeah. so inherently, it's it's old but new. So they've they've recrafted one of their older watches that had some traction in the marketplace. You know, made sure everything's you know the new and the latest. But what I love about it is, if you have a look at it, it's got uh, three internal dials mm-hmm. uh just you know the it's a chronograph so just you know the usual it's got uh, uh seconds and and a, and a countdown that goes for an hour 60 minutes as opposed to the usual 30 which is fantastic yeah, and also yeah. 24 hour time but the, the kicker is uh those three dials if you look at them closely they're they actually they're solar panels so oh, in order yeah. to make this watch work you just literally put it in the sun for six hours and boom there's six months of battery life so yeah so that's killing a technology if if the quartz option is is certainly a viable one if and i tend to think if if you're going quartz it's get solar technology the eco drives by citizen or mm. seiko killing it with their solar solar tech tech that they've got um and then you're taking the full benefit of set it and forget it everyone needs set and forget it in their in their collection let's face it you've got to have some quartz pizzas happening there mm. well i i love this because it's it's big it's chunky it's fat it's bold it's very kind of you know um bling with a capital b yeah but i also like the but fact also, that you know a... I, I take it off and i don't wear it for three days yeah. and when i pick it up it's still going as opposed to my brisho which i love but invariably when i pick it up there's no power reserve in this it's yeah, a 1960s watch i gotta you know interact I got to yeah. work out. Okay, what date is it? What time is it? Yeah. You know, and it's not a quick set date either. You've got to do the old-fashioned, the old-school way of doing. Uh, there is a trick to that. You you advance the, uh, let's say nine o'clock at night, and then advance it to midnight, and mm. that'll click the date over, and then wind it back, which is a no-no most of the time. But a watchmaker showed me with the old dates, you can get away with it. Mm. Uh, go backwards to nine o'clock and just keep doing that nine o'clock to 12 o'clock and advance your date that way that's mm. a slightly quicker way to doing it but um yeah that old non-quick set tech is a bit <laughs> can be trying or that's the beauty of interacting with with the mechanical watch now we've said a couple of times we're from uh australia so australia i don't know it's interesting we, we have access to you know 19 well We've got the internet, so we've got access to 100% of brands. Mm. But you do have some weird stuff going on, like um, there's a couple of brands I'm a big fan of, which the micro brands, yeah, yeah. just really hard to get in Australia. So what's um, we haven't chatted about this before. What's the brand? Um, Oak and Oscar is one of those brands that are really nice what they're doing, but because of import duties and things like that, you'd be raising some flags at customs buying a two thousand dollar watch mm. i was even is that's a micro brand though isn't it yeah, yeah i was thinking more like the the mainstream brands there's one owned by swatch called satina satina oh, yes. satina yeah. are massively yeah. massively um underrepresented and uh, underestimated yeah. you they're, they're bulletproof watches they're the you know they've been around great as, sports history oh fantastic yeah. but for some bizarre reason they don't have uh enough appropriate credit in the marketplace but the point is we don't even get them really in australia and the states don't get them either yeah imagine i'm sure it's a smart decision by the swatch group who seem to own everyone nowadays including longines but 
imagine not selling to the states and we don't get many of them in australia and there's a lot of desire in in the states for them too i'm picking up on the social media they could mm. they could make a killing but people i've approached over there uh mark from long island watches if he could strike up a relationship who said oh no swatch group those brands are you know that you can't communicate with them which <laughs> it, it's their decision to make maybe they've got market segmentation going on an overlap of brands they oh, i don't know it's all surmise really but um i think they're losing out but satina is a brand and uh fortis is another one but they're independent but even so they're hard to come across yeah which is in, in Australia, which yeah. is unfortunate. I cut you off before you talk about Oak and Oscar, but there's there's, oh, yeah, yeah. there's other micro brands that we find it hard to get. But equally, we have some micro brands which are really interesting, which I would love to see get a little bit of traction overseas. You've got a you've got a Melbourne, oh, the Melbourne mm. watch uh, company. They're they're doing some interesting things, and their line now is they're they're moving a little bit. Or they always were uh, in the dress. Or, or more business watches, like that business look. But they're moving in a sports direction with their Sorrento Diver, which I really like. That was the first diver I ever bought. Huh. Uh, and because I wanted an understated diver with no numbers, numbers on the bezel. Mm. So I thought, oh, this is the one for me. And I've dived with it, and it's, it's surprisingly legible because of the different layers to the dial. It's really nice to dive with, and I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, and well, you know, it's what I expected. But um, if if you're Australian, or we're we're based in Sydney, but uh, they, of course, shipping rates are, are quite uh, affordable Australia wide. So if you're looking at a good micro brand, mm. I think um, they're the yeah, good shops. The, yeah, the Collins, I think they're, the Collins is one of their dress lines. It's very nice. And they've done a chronograph recently. So, yeah, they're worth... So we're not totally in the wilderness. Yeah, and it, it, it's a funny thing because um, there isn't a Sydney... Uh, to, to my knowledge, and correct us if we're wrong, but there isn't a Sydney brand, which doesn't hugely surprise me because... Sydney, I guess there's Nick Hacko, yeah. the rebelled... I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Who I, I bought uh, my Explorer Two from him. Mm. He's based in the CBD Sydney, but their and their his uh, their flight watches or fleegers, um, and they're they're just they're they're pricey. But they they he is a watchmaker and they're bespoke almost. Mm. The, the what are they called? Uh, rebelled r-e-b-e-l-d-e yeah i find that funny because you know you've got you've got sydney not calling it the sydney watch company and you've got yeah. melbourne calling it the melbourne watch company and i reckon the reason for that is that if you don't know australia very well sydney and melbourne are pretty much friendly rivals a little yeah, bit like yes, say yes. la and new york mm. um but comparing the two you'd say melbourne is a little bit like portland in America, it's kind of, it's full of hipsters. It's cool. It's funky. For some reason, it just seems to have culture coming out of its ears, and yeah. it doesn't surprise me that they've actually called the watch after the name of the city. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. Because it's you know it's it's a it's a great name, kind of rolls off the tongue. It's mefluous. It, it actually comes from a person's name, Lord and, Melbourne from and England. Each of, each of their watches is a suburb. Mm, of, I didn't know. Of, yeah, each each model is named after a place in in Melbourne. 
Hmm. The, the suburban surrounds. That's grand. So, and and that um, that watch from New Zealand, which again I'm a little surprised. Oh, the Magretti, yes. Yeah, I'm surprised they called it uh, a French sounding name. It sounds like the uh, you know the the name of the French detective from you know, <laughs> George. I can never say his last name. George George Simone. Oh yes. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean that makes sense. It's a, it's a great name. It it suggests kind of uh, luxury, exotic French, perhaps a sense of kind of like heritage. The specific Pacific exploration, the Cousteau linkage, mm. perhaps I don't know. But uh... but then they've gone and called a lot of the the actual names of the individual watches um, very specific things connected to the ocean. Like your is your one the Moana. Yes. Yeah, so connecting to I that. own too many watches. I yeah, can't. yeah. It's, you're out of control. That's terrible. I can't remember the model name, but, uh, but I, I find, think it is. I find that interesting because another micro brand that I think is really cooking with gas is the Ocean Crawler. And if you have a look at their their names, the names of each individual one, like, you know, Barracuda, etc. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense that they've named all of theirs after specific places that you go diving. Oh. And they all have in kind of some type of throwback or... Um, allusion to that particular place so um on one of their watches the the color the color way of all the indices is based on the fact that that's the color of the water in that particular dive spot right which that's... is just which is awesome i love yeah. that and then you turn it over and they of course they're called ocean crawler and on the back they have one of those little trilobites which are literally oh. ocean crawlers yeah, yeah um so those little touches what, what's the name of that brand and it has it's made of submarine steel and if you look at it from the side it has etched into it a little submarine it's a german oh, brand starts with a Zen, d or no no or damasco yes or damasco, damasco yeah. yeah which i just i i think those little touches uh are just it's classy and fun and having a having a, a watch which has a which is bulletproof and kind of can go underwater and is is really ballsy and mm. well made, having a whimsical little touch to it. Mm. I, I I like that a poetical flourish. And mm. Needn't be a diver to appreciate these watches. Why why are they so popular? Even if you don't dive, it's because to take that sort of treatment they've got to be robust mm. which means they'll take anything on land they can take a, a knock just don't be dropping it from a three you know from the third floor because it's not going to work afterwards but what well, they can take a door jam yeah interaction a door jam interaction <laughs> that sounds like the name of a fantastic uh, swing band um <laughs> speaking of that i remember back in i think it's about 2008 i was at a mate's house we were in kirribilli which is kind of like literally overlooks uh sydney harbour yeah, for new year's eve sydney yeah. fireworks are quite literally the best in the world and i'm not being parochial they are yeah. they're absolutely off the chain but um in a in a stupid attempt to impress a girl because i was immature <laughs> well, back yes. then I, I took off my watch and i threw it off the, we were in the penthouse apartment, um, yeah. and I went down 17 floors and and hit the grass, you know, and then we all ran downstairs, you know, slightly inebriated to see if it worked, and it worked beautifully. Oh. Guess what the watch was? Uh, what could handle that outrageous treatment? I, I, my guess would be a Seiko. No, no, it was it was a G-Shock. Oh, right. So the okay. the G-Shock, like, let's be honest, you know, ugly as sin, but I, it it's, is, yeah, but, it's, it's, but it's a little bit like you know. It's a little bit like a punk rocker who's, you know, ugly and has teeth like a graveyard and shaves his head and, and, and gets tattoos on his face. And you think, you know what? Full commitment. So, yeah, 
Casio, G-Shock, it looked as though it's the type of thing that could handle it. Yeah. And, um, yep, yep, 17 stories, oh, bang. Gee. So, yeah, that's the... Uh, and in certain situations, it is the option to go for. I think a lot of guys go to the gym with their G-Shocks, don't they? You can time mm. time your reps. Now, my, mine was blue, and I, oh. I pretty much only ever wore it when I was wearing shorts, and I looked as though I was sporty because it's just... I like sportier watches, like this yeah. Seiko Solo Chronograph is sporty, but mm. I would still wear it with kind of jeans and a t-shirt, but the G-Shock I didn't. Yeah. But interestingly yeah. enough, you know, Basel World 2018, they've they've made, Casio brought out the G-Shock in... Oh, the steel one. steel. Yeah, oh, yeah. man. It catches the eye. I'm, yeah. I'm tempted, let's be honest, I'm not yeah. going to buy it, but I'm, I'm damn tempted. It, it's, uh, I must say, it's not... Uh, the, I have I haven't got a G Shock and um, yeah it's 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 been something I, I've never accessed but the I saw the steel ones and I thought oh if I was to get one they look pretty good so it's a, it could be a, a future purchase who knows yeah it's on on the list yeah. I mean you, you have a you have a big watch watch collection mine is is building building uh, ahead of steam yeah, but it I, could be mine could be too big but yeah uh, could, but maybe another podcast but. what I love doing is um, no I, I want to get kind of the classics I mean next up on the list for me is probably Squale then I want to get a Zin um, oh, yes. and in, in the fullness of time I'll I'll try and get myself a uh, a Rolex but mm. I suppose what I like is is discovering the the small brands the things that are perhaps overlooked trying to get a really well-rounded yeah, uh, watch yeah. collection which i think is half the point of this podcast we're trying to talk about how to be a well-rounded man yeah you know a polymath a renaissance man a person who's just kind of you know like a warrior prince as it were mm-hmm. not to not to be too outrageous but um i, I want to see that reflected in my collection um, yeah and we i mean we can you investigate if there's there's uh, uh, comparable things like shoes and investigating uh, writing implements or pens. We've got technology that you can now... These are an extension of self that uh, certainly worth discussing. Uh, but a, a well-rounded collection of wristwatches uh, and which can have different components, quartz movements and mechanical movements and manual wind movements, automatics... Uh, watches with complications, uh, chronographs and GMT watches. That, and that's just almost the, the tip of the proverbial there. Mm. Of course, the only watch you can't have, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, is a fake. Let's be honest. Fa- <laughs> fakes <laughs> are a little bit like seeing the, the, the cougar at the bar. You've had too many drinks. You look at her, you think, you know what? I wouldn't, I shouldn't, I couldn't, but screw it. I've, I've had seven tequilas, why the hell yeah, not? Yeah. Don't do it. it, it it's going to end in tears. So, so you can have whatever you want in your collection. But, for example... Better to save your money up. On, on, in, in my collection, one of my favourite watches, and this is going to sound a little bit ridiculous, is a Timex. And it's a Timex right. Explorer because when I lived and worked in Ohio, I bought one for Ooh. 30 bucks in a, in a Walmart. And because it was... Um, it was waterproof. It looked the part, and of course, it has that iconic little button. You press the Indiglow, and the entire oh, face yeah, yeah. close, which is incredible. Which is yeah. incredibly useful when you're on a uh, a ranch and yeah, it gets pitch yeah. black at six thirty at night. But you know, I, that was back when I was twenty one, back in ninety eight. Uh, eventually, it died, and 
I went to Mexico to Puerto Vallarta to go Ooh. on a conference and do some scuba diving, and I ended up buying another one. And it cost the grand total of 33 American dollars in a Mexican Walmart. Really? And um, I love it. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's absurdly cheap. It's it's almost cheap and nasty. But the fact is, it's 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 almost like a memento. It's and a souvenir. Yeah, it's a story. It's mm. evidence of time. It's Well, pardon the expression. It's evidence of place. It represents a, a time in your life. And you think that... And here's the rub of buying too many watches too quickly i'm testament to the fact that you you it's you have so many pieces you can't invest self into them which is the the drawback and you have to have a list of things i'll wear at certain points i.e the diving um perhaps rein in your uh, suspend uh, your desire to fulfill all these things at once if you can you can't spread yourself too thinly. It's funny, we've mentioned the word uh, chronograph a few times, which, you know, let's get a little bit uh, Greek geek mm. on you. So mm. chrono means time and graph means write, as in writer. So, it, you know, it, it, it graphs or writes the time. But, you know, chrono means time, and it comes from the Greek god of time, chronos. Mm. Now, what's interesting is that um, the Greeks had two words for time. The first one was chronos, which means normal or regular time but the second word is kiros and kiros means special time or a moment within a moment a moment when all things change kind of a pivotal moment Mm. um and um there are certain kind of pivotal moments when when everything changes you know a, a look at somebody and you realize that you've born fallen in love mm. or you know and, and no, is I, that how that works oh right. no yeah yeah it's all about the way you look i'll wait for that <laughs> but um yeah i just find it interesting with that we a lot of watches are just you know they're just chrono they're just designed to literally tell the time yeah but then you have other ones which are dynamically special like i love the story the fact that um uh, Paul Newman gave his watch, the infamous Daytona, to yeah. something like his sister's boyfriend at the time. Uh-huh. And and the guy said, oh, you know, because he was chatting to this guy, this guy didn't have a watch. So, oh, you don't have a watch. He's like, oh, I can't afford one. So he gave him his watch. So this guy wore it and then chucked it in a safe for like 30 years and because, I don't know, maybe well, upgraded or downgraded. It says a lot about Daytonas in the day. You couldn't give them away. Yeah, yeah. They were, like, super, super common, to be honest. not desirable. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, uh, time rolls on and mm. is, is secular and everything that's old is new again and the guy ends up taking it out of the safe and then sells it at Sotheby's or, you know, Christie's oh, for, for a, what? A million something. Mid- and change, like... That's ridiculous. This is a this is a free watch, but it has a story. Yeah. It's somehow imbued with a sense of significance and meaning, and it goes and sells for millions. So, um, the moral of the tale is hold on to those Ingersoll Mickey Mouse watches because one day, <laughs> one day, they won't be so Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah, yes, you'll be financing houses with them. Ah, uh, which is insane. That that idea of uh, having a Patek Philippe, which is essentially, you know, a, a Porsche on your wrist. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't really get it now. Maybe mm. because you know my finances are not so much that um, I'm making uh, a living off the interest of the interest. But one day when I'm happy to buy 
uh, a watch as opposed to a new 911. I'll um, uh, yeah, it's something to I'll upgrade for. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Listen, we might uh, leave put it a, there. Put a bow on it. So uh, this has been Nick and Neil speaking to you from Sydney, Sydney, Australia. Australia. So yes, yeah, so we started off just saying we wanted to talk about uh, life watches in the world. So it's been a little bit uh, rambling, but that's that's half the point. So mm. for us, watches are a touch point and something we're going to kind of weave in and out of as we discuss, I suppose, what it means to be a man, a gentleman, a Renaissance man in the 21st century. So uh, if you liked our purposeful rambling, uh, give us a like or a share or a subscribe. And, uh... You can reach us at manofthewordpodcast at gmail.com. One word. Music is the track Springtide by the Greg Levine Band which can be purchased upon request. Yeah, for us it's a, um, yeah, it's an experiment and we're uh, throwing it out there because, you know, as the as the idiots say, YOLO, but as the smart people say, carpe diem, uh, it's, it's worth having a crack at it. So we're throwing some ideas out there. If any land and you're feeling positive, let us know. If you're feeling yeah. negative, tell us, but in a really positive <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll have a chat to you guys next week.